Hi, I'm George Techmanshaw with another Easton Target Archery Podcast. Uh, we've got uh, the big cat Steve Anderson on the road this week. He's headed to the Texas shootout, so I've got a very special guest for our podcast this week, and that is uh, my coach of many years and um, one of the great figures in coaching in the sport of archery, Mr. Dick Tone from Arizona. Dick, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, I'm glad to be here, George. It'll be fun. It's always fun to to sit down and chat with you, and uh, it's uh, quite a few questions we've got from our listeners, so we're, we're just going to head right into it, if that's all right with okay. you. Sounds great. So, Dick, you've uh, you've been coaching for years. You've been shooting for more years than you've been coaching, and just for those folks who aren't necessarily acquainted with who you are and what you do, uh, let's let's recap a little bit of Dick Tone and uh, his history in archery. Started back in the started back in the fifties and uh, and and worked your way all the way to the top of the world. Yeah, you know, I started at you know, five years old just to the play bow and everything like that. It was kind of fun, and then of course, you know, that was in Minnesota. And we moved to Arizona in nineteen fifty, and uh, you know, the whole time down there, you know, my parents were talking about cowboys and Indians. And of course, going to Arizona that meant I was going to be either a cowboy or an Indian. And I decided I was going to be the Indian with the bow, and. Um, there was a really uh, nice old man just down the street from where we were living at the time, and he made us bows out of oleander bushes and arrows out of uh, uh, orange crates, and uh, it was really kind of cool. We uh, we terrorized most of the cactuses on in the in the local area, and uh, I didn't really get into shooting until um, you know I, I joined the club. I think I was nine years old, and I had a uh, you know Ben Pearson bow, and he joined the uh, club um, here, a local club here in in Arizona, a field course. Um, my folks dropped me off at uh, after church on Sunday and picked me up at dark, and uh, that's kind of it all started. The target archery part did not start until we moved to Canada, and um, you know I my myself and the neighbor we'd go across the street every day and, and terrorize all the animals in the local ravine and have fun and coming out of there one day we guy stopped and said you know if you're interested in shooting target archery you need to come to our club and see what it's like so i went over there and found out that you know they were shooting at these huge big targets and the distance was marked and you know i thought well this this can't be that tough you know i'm going to try that and one thing led to another, and I spent six years in Canada shooting tournaments, and I think I only lost one. And that's kind of all of how it all got started. And from then on, it just was one thing after another, and here we are today. Yeah, well, you skipped a whole lot in between, but yeah, oh, yeah here we yeah. are today, including the founding and running of Cavalier USA, which uh, for many years before it was acquired by AAE was one of the preeminent uh, suppliers of high-end target gear, uh, plungers and clickers and innovative rests. And, uh, I suppose I, I went backwards rests first and then other, other cool stuff. But, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, a lot of innovation, a lot of contributions to the sport, including, um, some stuff that we're going to talk about later in involving tuning, uh, and mm-hmm. your philosophy on tuning. So, um, you know, just a, a lot of opportunity when I've got Dick Tone on the line to, uh, to talk about all sorts of things, but, um, we're going to try to, we're going to try to organize this. And in order to do that, I think what we want to do is, um, just, just to set this up for our listeners, we're going to want to talk a little bit about coaching philosophy, equipment philosophy, and, and maybe, uh, talk a little bit of how, how do we grow talent in our sport? And then also we've got some questions from listeners that we want to get to. So, uh, any particular order is fine with me, but uh, let's start out with your coaching philosophy, Dick. Um, in, in very general terms, you've had tremendous success with people, you know, all over the world, but in particular, you know, um, Olympic gold medalist, Jay bars, world medalist, uh, Janet Schaefer, later Janet bars, his wife, uh, Jay's wife, and many, many others, um, give us an idea of what you're trying to do when you're working with a student. Well, you know, it depends on the talent level, but in, in most cases, when you start working with somebody within a very short period of time, you can, you can know their personality, you can know their uh, intensity, their, uh, their philosophy on life, and all the rest of it, which helps uh, approach that person and 
work with that person to get the best out of them. Not everybody's going to be an Olympic champion. Not everybody's going to be a world champion. Uh, however, you know, it's my philosophy that everybody can be better than they are now. And in, in general, when someone comes to me, uh, I, I watch him shoot for a little bit, and then we sit down and have a talk, and we talk about uh, what actually happens. And I find that when people actually know what happens when they shoot an arrow, what happens to the bow, what happens to the body, and all the rest of it, it's a lot easier for them to go ahead and, and produce a, a decent shot. Um, I think that's the thing that's really missing in, in coaching these days is people don't know or are not told what actually does happen. And so from there, I try to make the shot as natural as possible. I found that, you know, in the last couple thousand years, the body really hasn't changed much. And, uh, you know, it only operates uh, efficiently in certain ways. And if we let it operate efficiently and not fight what normally should happen in the physics of the shot, uh, it's a lot easier to produce a, a, a shot that is very repeatable. So that's basically my whole philosophy. So arguably, it's, it's, you know, really keep the shot simple, I think, is at the core of that. And it means a natural shot as much as anything else. It, it, that's true, as, as much as you can. Uh, you know, of course, everybody has different, you know, physics uh, makeup, physical makeup. Uh, you know, everybody's linked different. Their forearms are different. Their, you know, everybody, their bodies are different. You know, some people are, are heavier than others. And, you know, it, it it all depends on the person, but in general, you can get people to shoot a whole bunch easier. One of the things I always tell a new student after I start working with them, especially if they've shot for a while, and I watch them shoot, and I'll tell you, I'll tell them, I says, all right, sometime in the next hour, you're going to look at me and say, well, this is really easy. And they look at me and says, I don't know what you're standing. Well, just remember I told you that. And then without question sometime in the next hour when we're working together, they'll look at me and say, well, this is a lot easier. And I look at them and I says, yeah, I told you you were going to say that. So, and that's what it comes down to. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, one of the things that, um, there's a lot of folks out there that talk about Korean form and Korean archers in general. And I think everybody would hold the Koreans up as a benchmark for not just uh, scores and not just how to behave when you're on a team, but also, uh, obviously, for, for, their, for their shooting ability. And I think without exception, every Korean shooter I look at looks like what you produce from the standpoint of a natural shot, you know, follow through properly, things of that nature. Correct. Correct. Um, you know, just, you know, as a, as a, uh, a little history back in, you know, in the early 80s, um, myself and Dave Keggy actually worked a lot with the Korean junior teams every December. Um, and after two, three years, I told Dave I wasn't going to do that anymore. And he says, why? And I says, well, because <laughs> they're going to come back and, and kick our butts. And guess what? <laughs> That's what's happening. But they so, did apply what they learned from you and from Dave Keggy, Dave Keggy Sr. in this case. Correct. Um, yeah. Who wrote Power Archery back in the 1960s. Right. Um, maybe maybe somewhat forgotten by some people today, but one of the people who codified how we shoot even now. That's true. In actuality, you know, this all started with, with a guy named Chester Say, and he wrote a book in 1930, and that book was entitled Shooting the Longbow, the Relaxed Method. And he was the first person that I know of that applied any type of physics to the shot and said, if this happens, that has to happen. Drew diagrams, did a bunch of things that we look at today, uh, you know, triangles and all that kind of stuff, that it was way, way ahead of his time. And I had no clue this guy had written uh, uh, that book and actually had lunch with him and Doug Easton one day. Uh, and had I known that, I would have talked to him a lot more. Sure. You know? <laughs> but, uh, and then Dave Keggy in 1960, uh, you know, admitted he... You know, and I talk to Dave all the time. He's still around. And he said, look, I, I, I revised what was done by Chester Say and put it in modern terms, added a few of my own twists, which were good, uh, things like the open stance, stuff like that, uh, and applied it to a shooting philosophy, taught my son how to shoot, 
and he went on to win the Nationals in Jones Beach, and I think it was 1963. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was 16 years old, and you know nobody, everybody says, "Well, you can't." You're talking shoot about that. Dave Jr. Dave Jr. Yeah, yeah. Who, who came said, back well, in can't. the came back in the mid 90s and almost made the uh, you know made the finals for the Olympic team selection. Correct. Right. I mean, here's here's a guy that had talent and and was able to apply the philosophies Dave put in front of him and <laughs> went on and beat everybody. Even though everybody says you can't shoot that way, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, he had a much more uh, even even uh, even later in life. Dave uh, Dave Junior uh, has a much more you know natural shot in, in a lot of ways. Uh, he just as an aside for the folks who know Dave Junior, he he'd been a super heavyweight power lifter back in the seventies, right? And he needed to adapt his uh, shooting style to his body changes. You know, he had massive upper arms, and so he used a reverse grip. So he shot right-handed with a left-handed bow, pulling with his hand opposite the normal orientation. Right, and uh, it worked. <laughs> it was kind of kind of yeah. strange to watch, but it sure worked. And and the guy's a tremendous uh, mental game, you know, really yeah. good oh, shooter. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. And I guess he learned all that from his dad. He did. Yeah, both of them very uh, very good. Yeah, no doubt they, about it. Yeah, and and tremendous people too. Um, you know, one of the things though, that, that, you know, just, I'm just going to touch on that again. Let's understand Korean form is a synthesis of what they learned from people like you and Dave Keggy and also studying Russian shooters. Correct. And what, what they've done is they've tried to make the shot fit the body. In other words, whatever, whatever, however the body reacts to the bow will be what they use in their form. And when the body doesn't react correctly to the bow, uh, they're not doing it right. Mm-hmm. Now, so, one thing you notice is um, over the course of several years, uh, over the course of, say, 20 years, um, the form hasn't changed all that much. But no. the but, but the body uh, structure of a lot of the shooters has somewhat. A lot of emphasis on lower body strength, I think. Very much so. Well, you know, we found that out at the training center in in um, Colorado Springs back in the 80s. That all the testing we did, we found out that you know the most important part was your lower your lower body and your core. Uh, everything else is you know specific archery muscles that has to be trained basically by shooting. So, being steady and uh, being able to control yourself, um, you know, in the core muscles and the, the lower body. Uh, we did a lot of testing on the force platform and found out what was the best stance and how, how the best shooters did it. And it was very interesting um, uh, tests and stuff. You know, one of, the, one of the factors in Korea, I think, that leads to their success is the fact that there are some serious rewards available for people who succeed in the sport. And so they've got a big pool from which to select talent. Correct. Talent identification there is arguably easier because you've got a much bigger pool of kids that want to participate in the sport, and they can afford to, for want of a better way of putting it, they can afford to discard uh, people who either don't have the talent or the structure to succeed at a high level. We don't have that here, and I would say maybe thankfully we don't have that here to a degree, but how do you identify talent, Dick? Well, it, you know, it's hard to say how do you identify talent. I, mean, I think one of the biggest problems we have in archery is that we end up with the people who uh, are not athletes per se. In other words, they couldn't make the baseball team or the football team or the gymnastics team or the cheerleading squad yeah, or yeah. that kind of the, stuff. The folks like and, Steve Anderson are exceptions, not the rule. Right. That's true. But if you look at all our top shooters over the years – you know, uh, a very, very high percentage of them, um, if not 100%, are athletes in one way or another, other than archery. And our I would say Jay Bars is like that. Sure, right. I mean, Jay was a, a downhill skier, a tennis player, a baseball player, and, uh, you know, rode horses and did rodeo. And, I mean, he was an athlete. So athletes um, actually have better body awareness. They have, you know, of course, you know, uh, all sorts of better physical skills. And we end up with not getting those people uh, until later, maybe later in life when they've lost some of their skills. Um, in, in whatever other sport they were engaged in. 
Right. Yeah. Right. So, you know, if we really, really want to grow our sport, whether it be, you know, Olympic recurve or compound or whatever, we need to start, uh, you know, going after the athletes. Yeah. And I am talking high level here. I'm not talking about getting more recreational shooters as much as, no, no, you know, no. I'm talking we're about talk- development of, of competitive archers here. Yeah, we're looking at high performance type yeah. stuff. Yeah. yeah, just so just to make it clear to our listeners, um, yeah, because there's a whole different ball game if you're talking about archery for fun. Anybody right. can shoot archery for fun, and we love that. That's the greatest oh, yeah. aspect of our sport. But yeah. you know, the context here is 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 uh, performance development for sure. So, for sure. Um, yeah, I, I agree. And, and in the past, it's been talked about that you know you could draw from these pools of people. Like gymnasts, for example, who may outgrow the sport, you know, just through no fault of their own other than, you know, their body changing and and they can't do the stuff that a gymnast needs to be able to do at a high level. So maybe they'll pick up archery. I I agree that 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 pool uh, could be one that could be tapped. But I also think that you've got to be a little a little different. (laughs) You've got to enjoy standing there for hours and shooting. True. Yeah, you do. I mean, and that's not everybody. Very, yeah, and that's kind of a lonely thing. I mean, uh, you know, I've, I've got young men and women that love to stand there and shoot by themselves for hours and hours and hours, and don't think anything about shooting three, four hundred arrows a day. Yeah, same. I, you know, I used to be that way. I mean, that's certainly right? what I think it takes to stick with this sport at a high level. I also have uh, young people that are very, very talented that uh, you know would rather shoot with a group and just can't find anybody to shoot with. And so, you know, in order to, to maintain these people, um, uh, rather than losing them to other things in life, um, we need to work on the group aspect uh, for those who want it. And we need to work on, you know, the athlete a- aspect of it for the people we're going to you know, recruit. Um, it's, it's not a one thing solution. I think there's several things that are involved. Okay, that's a really good point. You're saying that there's not one size that fits all. I mean, you know, my experience is stand there by yourself until 10 o'clock at night and be the last guy to leave the range. But you're saying that there's room for creating talented shooters who could perform at a high level in a more group-friendly environment. And that's something that you've been working on down in Arizona. Isn't that true? Well, yeah, we, we do. We try and do that. And we try to get people to train together and work together. And, and um, you know, we've, we've done that, you know, in the past for those people who want it. Uh, and, and, and the other aspect of that is that if you spend your whole time just training by yourself, when you get to the tournament, your, your ability to cope with the other people, it makes it very tough. Mm-hmm. That's certainly so true. Really, it's a different you really pressure. Have to, you really have to have both. You have to be able to be standing on the line with somebody when their clicker goes off or when their release goes off and be able to maintain your concentration and do the things that are necessary that you can do standing there by yourself. And now you got to do it in a, in a group situation. Yeah, so. so we're talking about a more well-rounded individual, maybe in this kind of case. Well, true. Yeah, and uh, you know, there's a lot of Joe Ed clubs out there now, and different you know pl- places where people shoot and and have groups and stuff like that. Um, it, it, but that's a very important part of it, I think. Yeah, interesting. And also, I think in our culture, at least, um, it's an important part of keeping kids engaged and interested. You know, uh, if they're enjoying it, they're gonna they're gonna look forward to it, and they're gonna work harder at it. For sure, you know, and nothing, you know, <clears throat> makes people work hard like success. Yeah, breeds its own. So, yeah, that's that is a fundamental aspect of this, and that is the difference. Of course, one of the big differences culturally is in our country, you don't hand a bow to a kid fairly early in the process and have them start enjoying some measure of success fairly early your risk of losing their engagement is fairly high. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the, the Korean philosophy uh, sometimes doesn't, their culture doesn't necessarily fit our culture. Um, you know, I've been working with the Canadian team here for the last three years, and, and uh, their culture is different than ours. Yeah. And there, there, are different, there are cultural differences in how to train people that just don't fit um, everywhere. No, absolutely. I mean, there may be some things about the Korean system that we find extremely admirable, Mm -hmm. but I don't know if you could just take that and, 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 
you know, rubber stamp it to an American system or rubber stamp it to a Canadian or British or any other culture because that's a significant aspect of their cultural background. Well, one of the things that we, we started, I guess, you know, in, in Canada, and it was uh, our high-performance guy up there, Alan Bromps, started this. And when I came on board, um, we started interviewing uh, different coaches from around the world in what we call a gold medal profile. And what we were trying to do is identify what that guy looks like or gal that's standing on the podium. Where do they come from? Let's go backwards. When did they start? How many arrows did they shoot? What kind of daily training environment do they have? What kind of, of support system do they have? What you know? What kind of financial support do they have? The whole nine yards so we can look back out and say, okay, if we do this, this, and this, we have a chance at being on that podium. And it, it, it's really been kind of interesting because, you know, you, you, you go interview somebody, you know, like we interviewed the German coach, and he brought a disc and sat there for, you know, for two hours and talked to us. And the intensity of what they do just won't fit in Canada and definitely wouldn't fit in the United States. However, there were a lot of aspects of what they do that if you take that out of there and use it, that would be good. Right. So it's an interesting, you know, way of looking at it. And, you know, it puts some, you know, metrics to it that will actually be able to say, hey, if we do this, we could succeed. Well, it's no different than what the Koreans did in a way, if you think about it. Yeah. You know, they didn't necessarily apply everything the Russians were doing. No. Uh, in fact, if they did, they, <laughs> they probably have lost a few shooters. Uh, I'm thinking about people like Balov and some of the techniques that he would use. Yeah. <laughs> kind mm -hmm. of an inside... Inside story there for those of you who know who, who Artem Balov was. But the bottom line is, um, you know, it's use what works and maybe discard what doesn't. And eventually you create your own system. Well, true. And, and, and I, think, I think the biggest problem that we face right here in the United States at this moment is that we, ex we are excluding probably half the good shooters that want to be, you know, part of the U.S. system. Yeah, there's the elephant in the room. And, and yeah. there's a subject yeah. that we need to get to, even though, you know, I, I know there could be some controversy or politics involved here. Let's just be frank and say that um, we do have a crossroads situation right now. We do. Yeah, because, you know, if you look at it, you know, um, you know, making everybody do it exactly the same as somebody else is just doesn't always work. I mean, everybody's different. Everybody, you know, everybody's body is, is different. You just can't force something on somebody and say, if you don't do it this way, you can't play the game. And so we have we have people dropping out of this game because of that. Yeah. You mean here in the U.S.? In the U.S., yes. Yeah. But I think you're going to hear the same story in different countries. Um, I know sure. for a fact mm -hmm. that, that you know there's similar discussion happening in three or four other countries at any given time, um, mm -hmm. You know, whether it's France or GBR or uh, Spain or uh, even in Japan. Um, mm -hmm. There's people who are in the system and people who are outside the system. The difference right. in those countries is their selection process completely excludes anybody outside the system. Our selection process still allows someone outside the system to make a team. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make it as correct. easy to participate in the other stuff, but yeah. but you can still make a team. We do have an open trial, so that's for sure. Yeah. And that's not going anywhere uh, because that's codified in, in law, yeah. in fact. Yep. But, um, you know, and since we do have a global audience, I don't want to get in the weeds of, of the specifics of what's going on here, but I will say that it looks to me like some um, accommodation is, is being made recently for this fact and, and that uh, there's room for everybody at the trough right now. I, you know, I think so, and that's, that's or it's really getting good. that way. Yeah, that's really good. And, you know, I can see that those changes will actually be good for the association and, and good for our participation. So. Yeah, and I don't think it takes anything away from the existing, you know, system as it stands today. I no, will no, say, absolutely not. I absolutely will say, not. though, and I'm going to be frank here, I, I think one of the flaws we've got is that if you attend the classes and you go through the system, you can be a coach, a level four, without ever shooting a single arrow. Correct. Uh, that, that's a concern. It is a concern, you know. I, I I liken it to learning how to drive a car. 
you know, and I was talking to uh, one of my parents yesterday and I asked them how how the young man was doing on his driving. She says, well, he's doing good and this and that. And now we have a, a, a firm that's going to come and, and work with him, you know, once a week and do his driving training and everything like that. And they do that because, you know, it, it's better for the insurance, you know, and she drops their insurance about a bunch when you have a professional coming in training. And I looked at her and I says, well, the person that's coming to train your son how to drive, I says, do they know how to drive? And she says, well, that's a kind of a stupid question. Of course they do. And I looked at her and I said, would you send your son to have somebody teach him how to shoot if they didn't know how to shoot? And, and she just looked at me and she says, good point. Well, it is. I mean, you know, I, fundamentally, I think in order to be a well-rounded coach, don't get me wrong, I think somebody could be an equipment tuner maybe mm-hmm. or could do some other things by learning by rote, you know, the, the fundamentals. But if you're trying to give advice to somebody at a high level and you haven't been there, done that, I think that's a very difficult proposition. Very difficult. Yeah. I mean, if you don't have the background and the feel and know what those people think when they're under fire on the line, it's very, very difficult to teach somebody to get to the highest level. I imagine it would be difficult to get trust from shooters if you haven't been there, done that as well, I, you know. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, there, there was a recent uh, TV program where, you know, where Lee Trevino was on there and answering questions about coaches, and they were talking about all the coaches they have in golf now, and they have the mental coaches, and they have all these different swing coaches and all this kind of stuff, and and, the, and Lee, Trevino was, Lee Trevino said, we didn't have that stuff when I was playing. He says, my philosophy is if you couldn't beat me, I sure as hell wasn't going to listen to you. <laughs> Well, there's a great anecdote about that exact subject when uh, Jay Bars uh, moved down to Arizona to work with you, and <laughs> and uh, and it w- that we'll save that for another time, or maybe people remember it from <laughs> about 50 podcasts yeah. ago. Yeah, he didn't want to hear that story again. No, I'll bet he doesn't. So, <laughs> although he tells it, by the way, uh, I know he tells it with a different spin, though. Of course. Long lines of, he did this to me so he could beat me. Because, <laughs> uh, uh-huh, sure. you know, um, this goes back to the idea that if somebody comes to you with a, with already having established a form and that form is not capable of taking them to a certain level, you're going to have to tear it down and, and to a degree start over. For sure, yeah. And it's a lot easier when you have somebody that, you know, that you, you know, can notice talent in that starts from the beginning with no preconceived notions. It's amazing how fast they improve. Uh, uh, this this young lady that I work with down here in, in Arizona, Whitney, is is one of those examples. Yeah, I've seen I've seen her progression. You know, she's she's still pretty young, but I've seen um, her progression over the months uh, and years. And you know, started out with a pretty natural looking shot, by the way, and just seems to keep getting better. Well, yeah, after, you know, after 20 minutes, I mean, Jay happened to be in the building. After 20 minutes, I watched her shoot an arrow and it says, Jay, what do you think of that? And he says, yeah, that one, you know? Yeah. Because uh, you can tell. Yeah. Well, and, that goes back uh, to earlier when we were talking about identifying mm-hmm. talent, though. I mean, here's right. a, a young, you know, basically a kid who um, picked up the bow and got a very disciplined approach to it, I gather, uh, but shoots a natural shot. Mm-hmm. You know. Yep. Yep. And then you know we have we have several young people like that right now that are coming up and and you know it's very hard to for them to get involved in our system because you know the requirements. But that's changing and that's a good thing. So uh, as we as we progress, um, we may see a bigger talent pool. Um, we hope so. Yeah. yeah. Fundamentally, I think that the bigger pool you're going to have more chances of success obviously so for sure let's uh, shift gears a little bit here to try to stay okay. on on schedule and <laughs> respecting your time here um equipment and equipment philosophy i think that i learned to keep things simple from you correct yeah we have uh, we have a lot of equipment geeks out there if you will and, and i'm i'm one of them of course i mean i, I wouldn't have gotten the business of making stuff with uh, for equipment if i wasn't i mean it seems like ever since i picked up the bow i'm always trying to figure out a better way of doing it you know with equipment 
Um, and uh, I, I think that, you know, what we're trying to do with equipment, I th especially uh, when you're getting to the high performance level, is to keep it uh, as simple as possible and as repeatable as possible and as unbreakable as possible. Um, so it, it's a pretty simple philosophy, but it works. Yeah, well, no question about it. And, you know, again, if you want to point to a good example of people who, as a group, tend to do that, look at Korea. You know, they Correct. they tend to stick with, I mean, generally speaking, aluminum risers, generally speaking, high-performance limbs, but, you know, not, not, the, uh, not the crazy stuff. Um, and generally speaking, um, basic stabilization, nothing fancy. Nothing fancy because in all reality, um, you know, it all comes down, to, as I keep saying, it comes down to the connection between the bow and the ground. Yes, the geotoxonic interface as we, yeah. <laughs> the connection yeah. between the bow and the ground. Correct. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, fundamentally, it, I mean, the obvious thing is keeping it simple means less opportunity for something to break or screw up. Yes, you know, and uh, I mean, I go back to the days when we didn't have stabilizers, we didn't have cushion plungers, and we didn't have all the sight systems and everything we have now. And nobody heard of a doinker or a, a TFC or any of that kind of stuff. Um, you know, we just had to shoot bows and arrows. Um, and granted, as we material equipment, material and things have changed over the years, um, and as some of these things are coming along, it's it has helped the shooting. Um, I think the biggest thing that's helped the shooting is maybe the arrow um, changes in arrow, um, you know, things like the aluminum carbon arrow and all that kind of stuff. I mean. Back in the day when we shot nothing but heavy aluminum arrows at 90 meters, it's a big difference between what they're doing now. Yeah. So. Yeah. And by the way, you just saw maybe uh, a 343 world record set. Um, I, I saw that. Kim yeah, and Jim. Yeah, yeah. Very impressive. Um, yeah. And, you know, and you look at his 50 and he came back to earth a little bit. But, <laughs> you know, the Koreans are still using that, that four distance feet around. Yeah, they are, and and I think that's good. I mean, you know, it really gives um, uh, the archers a chance to not only learn how to tune their equipment so that when they went forward to back, thirty to ninety, their 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 sight saved the same. That you know, there are different body angles and you know different sight pictures and all the rest of it. I think that's really good. Well, so, just like shooting field can be good for you. Very good for you. You know, the, the great thing about field is it teaches you so much about wind. Yeah. And, and sun angle and all the rest of that that's very important in in recurve shooting because of your your, your string um, and how you line it. Yeah, and your body angle. You know, all that's, that stuff matters sure. a ton. It you does. Know, I believe yeah. personally that if you're if we've lost something by not shooting ninety meters anymore is what I want to cut to the chase on. I think we have lost out on a very fine motor skill thing that makes a big difference when you get closer. Yes. Because you cannot get away with a crap shot at 90 meters. You can't. And you can get away with more at 70. You can. And, you know, I think that, that the fact that the Koreans still shoot the four distances is partly a reflection of that. Naturally, it's also there because when you've got 100 people that can break well into 1,300, you've got to have enough arrows and enough change in the round to separate, you know, top from middle. Right. I thought that it was interesting that with their their presidential tournament, which was um, not too long ago, a month or so ago. Which also has a very generous pot, by the way, for, uh, you know, prize money. Yeah. And they had, you know, uh, they shoot the feet around and they had, what was it, 39 ladies that shot 1350 or better. Yeah. That, that just makes you go, hmm. I don't think we've ever had a lady in the United States even shoot 1350. If we have, it's 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 only one or two of them, and it's been in yeah. practice, I think. Yeah, I don't think that's ever happened. You know, uh, and they had 19 men that did that. Yeah, yeah, at, um, you know, and and you know, it's harder for the men with 90 meters. Yeah. So mm -hmm. you know, think about that. I mean, the yeah. depth, the the breadth of their when you've got the Olympic champion finishing something like 30th. Yeah, you know the female Olympic champion. I mean, it's uh, 
it tells you something about the talent pool in 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 that situation. Right. So you know, you could argue. Well, thank goodness for the uh, thank goodness for the elimination round. <laughs> well, yeah, and you know, and to go back to you know, uh, shooting philosophy and and form and all that kind of stuff. One of the things that I discuss and I do in my seminars and stuff too is that you know, the first thing we talk about is the five basics that are involved in any uh, athletic endeavor when you do it in the upright manner. And those basics really are simple. It's your balance, your physical condition, your mental condition, your form, and most importantly, your rhythm and timing. And, uh, you know, not too long ago, I did an article for uh, Bow International, and it was what I saw after not being involved in international competition for many, many years. I went back and I said, well, what, what has changed? And I looked at it. Well, the round has changed. Some of the equipment's changed. Uh, some of the people who are on top maybe have changed a little bit, but not much. Uh, and what it really came down to is nothing has really changed at all. And that the people who are winning, the people who are winning at the top, are doing exactly the same thing they were doing in 1992 and 1988 and, and earlier than that. And that is they have absolutely the best rhythm and timing of anybody out there. I remember Daryl Pace. I remember uh, my first coach, a fellow by the name of Leo Baldwin, showing me 16-millimeter films of Daryl Pace uh -huh. and saying, you need to shoot like this guy. Well, not too many people can shoot like that guy, but you right. could sure try to imitate his focus and rhythm and timing. Correct. Correct. And it, it, it sounds pretty simple, but there's actually been studies done, you know, um, medical studies on the brain and what happens when you're in a sport and you maintain rhythm and timing, what happens to your mental abilities. And it's amazing that these studies show 100% that if you maintain rhythm and timing, your mental ability is much, much stronger. Well, there's no question. And one of the great things that you see from a Kibo Bay, for example, just to throw out one prominent example, is timing is dead on. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, 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 uh, Rod Menzer took a uh, video of the young lady in, in Salt Lake and her first six arrows at the at the World Cup. Uh, as Chang, I think it was. Yeah. And, and she stood there and shot six arrows, and it wasn't, you know, calm. It was windy. She shot six arrows, and when she finished, she had two minutes and 15 seconds left on the time, and it was a 60 at 70 meters. And then went on to beat all the men on the line yep. and shooting the same distance, yep. and then made it clear in her interview that she was only shooting a 38-pound bow. And came within one point of the world record. Yeah. It was just an amazing performance. And that was Chang Hai Jin, the winner of Rio. But you watch that video and you watch the rhythm and timing and guess what? It's the same every time and you watch the people who are winning, they have the same thing. Yeah. And and folks, for those of you listening to the podcast who don't realize it, you just heard gold from the standpoint of advice for archery because those, those key characteristics, those five characteristics that Dick just mentioned apply no matter where it what you're shooting, where you're shooting, how you're shooting. That exactly. is exactly what you need if you really want to succeed at this sport. Correct. Correct. Um, what do you say we move on to some questions from our listeners? Perfect. Okay. First one um, comes from, let's try a question from Don, who is asking, are you currently taking on new students for coaching? And if so, how would one contact you? <laughs> well, yeah, I still do work with different people, uh, uh, you know, around here, and I have taken on some new people and stuff. Uh, uh, my time is getting more limited, but uh, I'm always willing to talk to somebody who wants to improve. So, how so, do they uh, how do they get a hold of you? You're on you're on Facebook, are you not? I'm on Facebook, so maybe that's probably the best way to get a hold of me. Richard Tone on Facebook. Uh, it, yeah, I think so. Yep. Yeah. Yep. It is. And uh, okay, next question comes from Joe McGlynn. Our good friend, top archer uh, from New York, and uh, you know I've, I've been been hanging with Joe for thirty something years. It's getting remarkable. It's his birthday today, as we record this. By the way, happy birthday, Joe! 
Happy birthday, Joe. So, Joe, do you plan on, or sorry, Dick, do you plan on writing a book based on your coaching philosophy? Joe wants to know. Well, matter of fact, uh, you know, I've written uh, so many articles for different uh, magazines and stuff, and I've put all this stuff together. And, you know, I've uh, I've attempted to, you know, put it in chapters and try to put things together into a book. And it's kind of an ongoing process, and I'm still working on it. But, yeah, I'd love to put one together. So if you have any writers out there that want to help me, let me know. (laughs) I might know one or two. Oh, boy. That that would be a fascinating project, you know, just from the learning aspect of it. You know, you always learn a lot when you work on a project like that. Well, yeah. And that's, you know, I guess that's part of the coaching philosophy, too, is if you're not learning every day, uh, you're not doing it right. Alex is asking a technical question here. Um, given that the spine chart is divided into groups of about four pounds and one inch, how safe of an assumption would it be? That if a particular set of arrows bear shaft tuned correctly at a particular poundage, the next spine stiffer would tune at four pounds more. Um, for example, if a 720 ACE tuned at 35, would a 670 need 39? And the general answer, I'm going to ask you in a moment, but I believe the general answer is yes, depending on whether you're within a certain range in the variables, variables being things like brace height and bow length and some other stuff that, you know, and and point weight that, uh, that you need to account for. True. And I mean, all, you know, all that really makes a big difference these days. Uh, uh, my philosophy on tuning a bow is, is, you know, first you want to find the correct arrow shaft. And I see so many people trying to make do with what they have and tune an arrow, um, uh, to their setup rather than finding the correct arrow shaft first. And, you know, back in the in the day, um, you know, it was pretty simple. We didn't have all the stuff we have now. Well, you basically um, only had one choice for arrows. We had a lot fewer choices for, for arrows. And what, you, what we really had to do was, you know, find the right arrow shaft, and then it was easy to tune. Sure. You could add uh, or subtract point weight or or play with length a little bit to get it to work. Correct. A lot more variables today. No, we didn't have the adjustable limbs or any of that kind of stuff. And uh, I think it was kind of funny when they when the first uh, cushion plunger came out. Uh, a guy named Norman Pint actually developed that, mm-hmm. and and the name of that thing was called a panic button. Yeah. And it was kind of interesting that we would sit there with a beautiful rosewood handle bow and decide, okay, I'm going to drill a hole in this thing right here in the sight window and stick this thing in here and see if it works. And by the way, you more or less arbitrarily chose where in the sight window that thing was going to go, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know, you know, we had no clue, but we learned. Well, so. and people gravitated toward putting what became popularized as the, uh, as the, uh, you know, the, the cushion plunger. Or right. the burger button, popularized by right. Vic Burger, but invented by Norm Pint in Oklahoma, I, I think it was, right? Right. Yeah. Well, he actually was from, uh, Norm was from Iowa. But oh, from he, Iowa. Yeah. So, you know, the, the point is that, that uh, all of this stuff was, was not codified. You know, the manufacturers didn't put bushings into the bows to accept these things until late 60s? Yeah, late 60s, early 70s. Yeah. You know, we didn't even have stabilizer holes. Well, had because drill, had drill those. <laughs> you didn't have stabilizers either until yeah. till Earl Hoyt popularized those with, uh, you know, at first integrating them into the bow. And then later uh, you could get, a lot of people don't remember this, and I don't remember it per se from experience, but I know that at one time the rules didn't allow you to have more stabilization than the total length of your arrow. Something like that, yeah. I know at the 65 World Championship, FIDA Congress was deciding whether or not to allow us to use stabilizers in the tournament. Well, there you go. So, so. that gives you some idea of, of how relatively recent some of this stuff is from the standpoint yeah. of, you know, where we're at. Um, so. But without going off into the weeds, Alex, uh, one thing that is in our favor today is um, – that we have a lot more variables in terms of what we can do to the bow to make it work with a given arrow. So with deference to your point, Dick, about picking the right shaft, yes, but we have a powerful tool today that a lot of bows didn't have back in the day, and that is weight adjustment. Weight adjustment, uh, length adjustment. I'd rather take a a heavier arrow, a heavier spine weight arrow, uh, cut it a little long, and then work 
by cutting the arrow back to tune it, yep. uh, changing point weights, uh, you know, changing knocks, changing string weights, and changing brace heights to get it correct rather than, you know, cutting one off and saying, okay, I'm going to make this work. One of the things that amazes me, and I, I work with, a, as you know, I work with a lot of shooters in Japan, and many of them mm-hmm. are shorter draw and lighter poundage. Mm-hmm. It's amazing what a big difference it makes to take a few ounces off the bow weight. I'm, I'm talking about the limb weight, you know, the, right. the draw weight. Just right. a little change can make a big difference when you're starting to work in a thousand spine range. Well, and it's even, yeah, it's, yeah, that, and that's so important with kids too. And I mean, it, it's very, I mean, any little move you make on the arrows and kids makes a big, big difference, yep. like you said, with a lighter spine weight. And that's, and, and to get back to Alex's question, Alex, that's where things start not going linear on you. You don't have that exact four pound relationship there. You're talking, we're talking less than a pound can make a big difference. It can, you know, and, you know, changing your tab material and changing your fingers on the string. I mean, there's so many different variables. Because going back to what you were talking about earlier, one of the big variables is that connection between the bow and the ground. No two people have the exact same draw and exact same release. And the way the string behaves on the release can make a huge difference. A huge difference, correct. One of the things I, I hear all the time, though, is that, you know, if I got a, if I got a weak arrow, I'm going to stiffen up the plunger and, and tune it. Or if I have a, a heavy arrow, I'm going to loosen the plunger and tune it. Well, guess what? You cannot change the dynamics of the arrow with a cushion plunger. It's impossible. Nope. All you're doing is changing the orientation of the arrow as it leaves the bow. The actual dynamics of it haven't changed. Not a bit. So don't be using your cushion plunger as a tuning mechanism per se. No, no. And matter of fact, in my original tuning uh, uh, explanation, you know, we use a solid button, no, no spring tension at all. Yeah. To determine first, you know, what is the correct shaft? I do find it just as an aside, kind of amusing that people refer to certain methods. They call out certain names for certain methods, and it all mm-hmm. derives from your original work on the solid, you know, lock up the plunger and, and, and yep. get things mm-hmm. settled. And then, so today you hear the so-and-so method and the so-and-so method and they all, they're all your method, but they've been renamed since. It's just kind of, <laughs> yeah. you know how things go. It's, it's a cycle. That happens. Yeah, that happens. Well, the reinvention of good ideas, I guess, something like that. But it's always a bit, I, I always snicker just a little bit when I hear so-and-so uh, certain names attached to certain techniques because, you know, I know yeah. where they come from. Um question comes from let's see here uh pick a good one uh this one is from jacques he is asking a specific question about equipment he wants to know okay. about uh recurve bow limb materials um and specifically he's asking the greatest difference between the syntec he means the syntactic foam he says right. the synthetic foam and the wood core limbs so is there a significant preference for either specific core in the professional scene well, you know, limb design and limb materials have changed dramatically, uh, you know, over the last 20, 30 years. Oh, yeah. and, you know, everything was, you know, um, the laminated maple core for many, many years. Yep. And I think when uh, Easton or Hoyt came out with the syntactic foam, it was a big, big jump in, in what was used and it made the limb so much smoother. Uh, and it also made it more stable, you know. Um, and so then, so that was actually know. Easton engineer Gary Felice, the same guy who invented the aluminum hockey stick. Right. Uh, Gary, um, who was also a pretty good archer in his right and, and uh, enthusiastic shooter, and also was one of those guys that worked with Doug Easton back in the day. Gary had mm-hmm. uh, derived syntactic foam from a basically secret Navy product that was made for keeping the Fairwater planes on Los Angeles-class submarines from collapsing under sea pressure. And that wow. was the same material. So, That's cool. you know, the, the purpose of the limb core, Jacques, is to separate the working part of the limb, uh, that is the skins on the face and the back of the limb, now, whether those are made of fiberglass or carbon or some combination of those things or just carbon these days. Right. Um, and the idea here is that you don't want it to change dimensions and you don't want it to crush under pressure. Or you don't want it to change with the atmosphere. Yep, yep. You don't want yeah. it to change when it gets warm out or to, uh, you know, or, you know, change its characteristics in any way, really, from, uh, you know, normal use. 
And that so was, that, that was one of the big advantages of the foam. Yeah, at the time it was a big breakthrough because wood core limbs, you'd have different sight marks throughout the day. And right. syntactic, syntactic limbs um, had a tendency to keep the sight mark more stable. Now, you still had to chase your bowstring to a degree, mm-hmm. but uh, the foam core limb was more was more um, consistent, you know, in general terms, given the materials of the time. Well, yeah, and then if you think back, I mean, everything, you know, was done, you know, in the in the past with, you know, Dacron strings, which very, that stretched a lot and were very easy on the limbs. And because of the different types of glues used back then, if you were to put, you know, some of these Spectre strings on it or Fastlight strings, it would blow up. Yeah, or Kevlar for that matter. Right, or Kevlar, and you know the foam, uh, the different glues, uh, the different designs of limbs, uh, have all allowed us to go to string materials that make the bow perform much better. Now, to a degree, what we've done is we've kind of come full circle because more emphasis has been put on the skin material of the limb. That is the uh, basically the carbon layers are mm-hmm. more sophisticated than they used to be. And there's another thing, and that is a lot of folks like the feel of a wood core or a, in today's parlance, a bamboo core limb, like mm-hmm. the one that Hoyt makes, um, you know, and that, which by the way, actually, you know, goes back a long ways as well, because a lot of Japanese bows were made with bamboo back, you know, into antiquity. And um, Yamaha did a bamboo limb back in the 1960s. Well, and Howard Hill made all his long bows and recurves back in the fifties with bamboo core. Yep, yep. So it's a it's 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 uh, become popular again. Right. Um, Hoyt's number one limb right now is the X Tour, I think it's called, and it's got a bamboo Correct. limb, a bamboo it core. It does. Mm-hmm. Yep. And and I think you know the other thing that's really you know gotten better over time, and I think Win and Win put this before us, uh, and and now Hoyt has come up and, and and matched them, if not gotten better, is that's the torsional um, strength in yep. the limb. Yep. And if you look at some of the old bows, and I've got some of them around here, and you string them up, and you grab the limb tip, and you you can just move it everywhere, uh, and it makes it very unstable at full draw. I don't know how these people shot the scores they did. Uh, and then you shoot, you take uh, something like our Quattro limb that Hoyt makes, uh, and you put your hand on it and try and move that limb tip. It doesn't move, even with a very lightweight bow. Yeah, and and Win and Win certainly uh, put a big emphasis on that, and and uh, I would say that Hoyt followed. And then uh, I would also argue, you know, as you do, that uh, at least they're they're on par today. So correct, correct. Um, Either way, uh, you are seeing some fundamental basics when you look at, at some of this stuff. And one of those things is that there is no significant preference. Uh, there's lots of professional top-level shooters who like syntactic foam limbs and lots who like natural core limbs. It's a matter of personal taste. So Correct. That hopefully- I mean, with the, lim- the limbs that I designs we have today are so stable with the high-performance stuff that at this point it's you know irrelevant whether the core is bamboo or what it is yeah it's a personal taste thing jacques so thank you for your question sir uh oh i'll mention also string materials have come a long way i mean you know i I think you'd agree dick that that string materials today are 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 really really good and yet koreans still shoot fast flight correct you can buy all sorts of other stuff out there today and bcy has been a leader in in making um you know advancements in this area angel making advancements in this area but Good old fast flight still works pretty well. Yeah, it does. There's no doubt. Uh, our regular listener, Sarah, says that she reads to and listens to anything she can about archery, recurve in particular. She's been doing this for a while, but she hasn't found anybody in her area, and she lives up in the upper Midwest, I, I believe. Uh, hasn't found anybody in her area with a serious dedication to competitive archery technique or mental game development, so she doesn't know what she doesn't know. And as a coach uh, in her area... She's getting requests from parents to expand her services to towns nearby, becoming sort of a circuit-riding preacher of archery. So she would love to have somebody like you offer seminars uh, or other you know, people like you. Um, this is actually a, a bigger problem than not because there's only so many real experts to go around. What what can be done in this sort of realm, Dick? What can be done to help improve situation for people like Sarah who are coaching but need that next level of knowledge? 
Yeah, that's, um, <laughs> well, it, it's funny you should mention that. I mean, actually, uh, yeah, after the, uh, I guess it was uh, the Vegas shoot, like, two years ago, two and a half, three years ago, whatever, uh, I was approached by Rob at Lancaster. Rob Caulfield. Caulfield, yeah, to uh, come to Lancaster and do a seminar. And I said, oh, well, all right, I, I can do that. And uh, so I put together a PowerPoint presentation and a seminar that basically is a two-and-a-half-day deal and went there and did this for the first time and, uh, you know, one of the people in the seminar was a young lady named Casey Caulfield, Rob's daughter. Yeah, who's a very, uh, very accomplished uh, junior shooter right now. Right, and she had been in Vegas that year, and you know, got got her butt beat by a couple of my kids, and decided that maybe she ought to listen. And I think she owns just about every one of the national indoor and outdoor records now in her class and other classes. So, and as a cub shooter, she's now number one in the cadet division. So she can shoot. But what we found out after doing this seminar is that there's a lot of people out there that are, want to hear some different things. And the first seminar I did, it took them two or three months to fill up the 20 spots. The second seminar we did that we did this last year in uh, May or June, whenever we did it, uh, took 12 hours to fill. That was the one that you and Jay Bars did at Lancaster Archery, right? Correct. Yeah. yeah. And you know, we're looking to probably do more of these. Um, I'm not sure, you know, how the schedule is going to work. But uh, if we can figure out a way of doing it, we're going to continue doing it because people want to hear the, you know, they want to hear it, want to hear what we what we know. Oh, yeah, so. absolutely. So, Sarah, that's an opportunity potentially is uh, pay attention to what's happening on the Lancaster website, for example, and uh, and follow Dick on Facebook if you don't already. And you might be able to get early word on something that won't be terribly far from you. Um, and, and Sarah mentions Lansing, Michigan, as a good place uh, for her personal uh, situation as a central area, and and there may be uh, opportunities all over the country for this kind of thing. Yep. So, so, so good on Rob uh, Coffold for helping to uh, to uh, create those opportunities and uh, and get those out there. Yeah, he's a big supporter of archery of all kinds, and you know, in in various specifically, he really wants to see the U.S. in both recurve and compound do well. Yeah, no doubt about that. He's uh, he's definitely making that effort. So um, that that is uh, hopefully uh, something that might be helpful, Sarah. And the other thing is, of course, you've got opportunities in places like Vegas, Lancaster Shoot, and um, you know many of the USAT events that are around the country to actually um, get some time with People like Dick Tone, um, you know, not necessarily you because you, you've been coaching Canada and some other stuff, but you're, you're at a lot of these tournaments as well now. I am. I've been to most of them this year. Um, I'm not going to be in Texas this week, but, uh, you know, it's hunting season, so you yeah. can do everything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, well, you know, if you, uh, it's like having everything, where would you keep it, right? Exactly. It'd be nice if you could do everything, but there's only so much time in, in the day. Um, good question from Ian. Um, how can you train for the indoor target season besides shoot indoors? So just, um, just a preface for this, of course, here in North America, uh, and in Europe and, and most of Asia, people are preparing for indoor with most of the outdoor season being over. Of course, in the Antipodes, we're you know, looking at the opposite situation, but, uh, how do you get ready for indoor season, Dick? What's your philosophy on this? Well, the, the, the philosophy, there are several philosophies on indoor shooting compared to outdoor shooting, but I think the, the biggest, uh, you know, thing, the biggest philosophy is how you think. Um, and when you shoot outdoors, when you're shooting 70 meters or 50 meters or whatever it happens to be, you're standing there and you're trying to hit the target. You're trying to do as well as you can. You're trying to make the shot as perfect as you can and everything flow and you hit the target. Yet when the people go indoors, because the scores are so tight, they try not to miss. And when you get that thought possibility in your head or thought process in your head, everything tightens up and the shot is not the same. So I think the biggest philosophy is to learn to shoot indoors with the same outdoor philosophy of trying to hit rather than trying not to miss. Exactly. So 
you have a strategy for that? Well, one of the things we've done when people tried to get too precise and they try to get, you know, I got to put it here and there is I have a little drill I use and we actually use this on the Koreans many years ago is we will let the person sight in so they're sighted in correctly and then we take a clean 40 centimeter face or 60 centimeter, doesn't matter, you know, with the white background, you know, white back and we turn it backwards. So all they can see is the white. So they're aiming at this piece of paper. They're aiming at a piece of paper. We have them shoot their 30 arrows for score, turn it over, and score it. Now, this would be with a one-spot, I presume, right? What's that? With a one-spot target. One-spot target, yep. right. You can do it in three-spot, too, if you want, but that's really difficult. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say. you gotta, you, you gotta, have, you gotta have, have to cut those three spots up. But so no, what's, it, what's interesting, though, is, what's interesting is the grouping that you could see. I mean, it, you're, well, yeah, you're basically chasing your arrow. Well, not only that, but it frees up your your uh, sight picture. Yeah, you're not scoring instead of trying to keep the sight in a gold or anything like that. You're actually looking at a white piece of paper, and you're allowing the mind and the body to aim for you. So that is a good entree to one of the things that you're perhaps most. I'm going to use the word infamous, but I don't mean it. Infamous for which is solving the problem that some people have. Uh, what the Koreans call clicker disease, what other people refer to with other words, uh, and that is um, the tendency some people have to hang up on the clicker and not execute the shot because of what they see in their aperture. Correct. This this is always a good story. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, the, the biggest problem there is that I think, well, I think there's several reasons that people get target panic or whatever you call it. Um, one of the reasons is the sight pin itself in that you're actually looking at a sight pin and you're covering up what you want to hit. And if you cover up what you try to hit, the anxiety level goes up because you don't know what's behind that. Um, so that's the biggest problem, and that's one of the reasons I, I prefer using an open ring. It does relax you, and, and when I mean by an open ring is something larger than the gold when you're looking through it, something that will encompass the red or the blue or that type of thing. Now, I've had good results with open rings that actually showed the entire target. Right. When I started first messing with this, you know, I was shooting 90 meters, and I made a ring that was big enough to see my target and the target next to me on either side, which was huge. And I stood there and shot, and I shot the same scores or better. Just as an aside, you played an awful trick on some people one time, didn't you? Oh, that was funny. We were shooting a field tournament in California, and it was one of those, uh, you know, where they blow the whistle after a certain period, you know, blow a horn, and then you start. So everybody went out to different targets. So-called shotgun start. Right. And we're standing there. There's four of us standing there. And, and I knew the bot time from blow the whistle. And I looked down. And I says, oh, my God. And the guy said, what's wrong? And I says, I'm, I'm my sight pin. I don't have my sight pin. And they looked at my open ring. And they said, oh, my God, let me help you find it. So here we are with three guys on the on their hands and knees looking for my sight pin, which was <laughs> never there, you know, in the first place. It took them four or five targets to figure out what, what actually happened. Yeah, because you're like, oh, well, I guess I'll just have to shoot this way. Yep. <laughs> but that's that was a fun part. Yeah. I, I, I think the other thing that I, I look at in, in those things is, is is the three words anticipation, action, and reaction. And what we do when we shoot is we're anticipating either the clicker going off or the release going off or whatever. And what we set up an action that things that we have to do that the body doesn't normally do that you want to do as soon as that clicker goes off, uh, i.e. hold the bow arm straight up or stop this from happening or stop that from happening, you create uh, the anticipation in an anxiety level that increases. And so then you don't get the proper reaction of the shot. So if you look at it as a controlled anticipation of this is actually what's going to happen, and I know the clicker is going to go off, I know the release is going to go off, and I anticipate it in a controlled manner and let everything happen in the proper reaction, uh, it, it solves a lot of what we call target panic. Yeah. Fundamentally, it's, it's getting your mind in the right place and focusing on the right stuff and um, 
not yeah. maybe allowing it to wander, which goes back to focus in the part of focus, rhythm, and timing. You know, Correct. If you've got proper focus and you complement that with rhythm and timing, you don't give yourself time to screw up. It doesn't, you know, and if you look at the top shooters, I don't care if they're Korean or German or whoever happens to be women winning at the time, if you watch their eyes, they focus on where they want the arrow to go, never changes throughout the shot. If you watch somebody that's at full draw, that's blinking and things are changing in their eyes, you know they're nervous. So the focus, the maintaining the focus on where you want the arrow to go through the shot is so key. And that has to be established in an Olympic round before the clock starts. For sure. Because you don't have time. You don't. You don't have time. Yeah. So. This has to be a, you know, it's it, it's funny, but you see it in the top shooters. You don't see it in, in the ones that aren't winning. Well, it's, it's a simple thing, but it is fundamental to that high performance level that we were, you know, we've been talking about. People want, people want performance. It's simple to get. It's not hard. You just have to have discipline and focus at the time that you need it. Exactly. So. So. All right, Dick. Well, I think that covers uh, what we were looking for from the standpoint of our listener questions. Um, okay. And I just want to thank you very much, not just for uh, being on the podcast, but for all your years of guidance and, and support. Thank you so much. Well, George, it's been fun. I've enjoyed being around you and shooting some of the equipment or that you've designed and everything. It's been it's been awesome. Well, I look forward to talking with you again here on the Easton Podcast and next time I see you. And uh, Dick Tone, Master Coach, thank you so much for joining us here on the Easton Podcast.